0: Hello, this is the podcast of Ithaca College's NAFME Chapter. We have a very special bonus episode for you today, hosted by our president, Laura Sefchek. This is a recording of an event we had the other week with Dr. Rob Diemer, where we ask him questions about including composition in music education and diversifying repertoire. We hope you enjoy. All right, so um, our guest today is Dr. Rob Diemer, uh, and he is a professor of composition at Fredonia, uh, and he's had some works commissioned by the Buffalo Phil. Um, I also was looking at your website. You have some by the wind ensemble at the University of Texas um, and some of the marine bands, which sounds super exciting. Um, Something we were super excited about is your um, composer diversity database um so we were wondering what inspired you to create this database
1: sure and uh I, first off i'd like to thank you for for having me uh this is this is pretty exciting that y'all have have your own podcast that's really cool so um how did this whole thing get started uh, about four years ago uh in the summer of 2016 I had a little extra time on my hand over the summer, and I'd been meaning to create uh, a resource for my students here at the State University of New York at Fredonia um, to find more women composers, because obviously there's a lot of, of well-known male composers, uh, both historically and then even contemporary, uh, but but it's harder for them to know who to look for. and so. Uh, I, I thought I would put this spreadsheet together, uh, that would, that would help them to do that. And initially it was just going to be a list of names and, and hyperlinked to their websites, which is kind of how everybody else had been doing it up until that point. There were a couple other websites out there, uh, that had similar type of resources. So I thought, okay, well, we'll just put this together. It'll be nice and easy, you know, famous last words. Uh, so. Uh I had the idea as I was doing it, what if I made it a little bit easier to be able to search for specific types of genres initially, like the whole idea was, uh, you know, to look up someone who had maybe written an opera or written something for wind band uh, or for jazz or for musical theater or for orchestra and so on and so forth. So I first started with that. And then I'm like, well, you know, what if people are looking for specifically women composers who are black or Latinx or Asian? And then it just kind of went from there fast forward about a year and a half. And I had a shareable Google spreadsheet with almost 3000, uh, composers in there that I had gone through initially myself, and then I'd gotten a few of my students here at Fredonia to um, help out with independent studies. And we we basically launched it as the women's composer database at the beginning of 2018. And about six months later, started the composer diversity database, which was a website and the spreadsheet was then turned into an interactive website uh, that also included all composers of color or at least Maybe not all of them, but we're working on that. Uh, But at least, you know, uh, both male and female composers of color. Uh, And then six months later after that, the beginning of 2019, I I was able to convince the folks here at Fredonia to let me start the Institute for Composer Diversity. And that's pretty much uh, what I've been up to the last two years, uh, where it has a composers diversity database where you can look up composers by a number of different search components. We also have a growing works diversity database uh, that allows folks to initially look for works by uh, for excuse me, uh, wind band, orchestra and art song. And we're currently building a choral database and a chamber music database. Uh, and then we also do a lot of uh, analysis. I did analysis of about 120 orchestra seasons last year. We're currently doing that again this year, both for their intended seasons, but then also for their pandemic seasons, because as you can imagine, that's quite different uh, than it was. Uh, you know, what they are currently performing is very different than what they thought they were going to be performing. Uh, in addition, we're also doing an analysis of about five years of CBDNA reports, so uh, wind bands all over the country uh and then we're also looking at state lists um at the k-12 level and and looking at initially concert band works but then that's going to grow uh and include orchestra and choir and probably chamber music as well to be able to find out what works are in different state lists initially uh, find out which works are by underrepresented composers, put those into an aggregated list, and then help different states to be able to diversify uh, their required repertoire lists. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what we're up to.
0: Yeah, I think it's great that you've created this database. It's um, really nice for, I think, new teachers especially. Um, it could be really daunting to just stare at the Amount of works of compositions they are uh, there are out there, um, and it's nice to have this easy location to find works um, to make our classroom more diverse. Um, on that front, did you have any hurdles uh, finding all of these composers and kind of putting them together? Um, did they happen to be a lot of people you knew, or did you have to go on this uh, search as well?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know that many composers. I know a lot of composers, but maybe <laughs> not, not not that many. Uh yeah, this initially actually grew out of a list that I, I'd put together myself of just uh composers who I knew. And then once I had decided that this project was not just going to be a, a project for my students here at Perdonia, but something that the uh, broader musical community would be interested in. Um yeah, then I started doing some more digging and yeah, pretty much it's been it's been fascinating. You you mentioned hurdles uh, finding composers hasn't been all that difficult. Like it just takes a while and, and there are different places to look, especially if you're looking for specific, you know, composers from specific regions or specific groups, um, this year we've had a bit of an, uh, uh, yeah, I would say an issue, uh, that we've been, uh, dealing with over the last few months where Uh, there's a lot of different lists of composers already out there, uh, both lists of composers and then also lists of works that folks have been, uh, putting together and, uh, we're not the only ones, but we've gotten fairly high profile. And so, um, earlier this year questions were, were raised by some composers out in the world, uh, whether or not it was, it was good, whether or not it was appropriate to have composers who, um, didn't give permission for their information to belong in our database, which had never really even been on my radar and anybody else's radar that had been helping with this because the whole idea was just like, Hey, here's stuff that's out there in the world. It's public information, um, you know, on their websites. And then, you know, we're just pointing folks to be able to make it a little bit easier for them to find. Um, but as you can imagine, uh, with all of the things that have happened this year, especially in 2020, uh the idea of of making sure that we're respecting the composers that are in our databases and making sure that we have their consent and permission and making sure that all of the information, much of which was actually submitted by their composers, but we just want to make sure that everything in our databases moving forward uh has been kind of signed off by the composers and make sure that if there are any composers that weren't uh weren't pleased with the idea of being in a data database that we would take them out so that's pretty much what we've been doing the last few months it took a while for us to be able to find um as you can imagine about 3,500 uh email addresses and uh contact pages uh and then we've been reaching out and and uh, contacting those composers and as you can imagine Uh, sometimes it takes a while for folks to, to respond back to their emails. So, uh, we've been, uh, working on both, uh, reaching out, contacting those composers and then bringing that information back and then slowly putting that information in, making sure that the information that's in the composer database, um, is up to date. And we've actually just reached the threshold last week, um, where we have enough because we had muted them for about a month or two uh to make sure that everything was on the up and up that that uh that there wasn't anything that was uh being shown that shouldn't have or at least that composers uh weren't comfortable with um so so hopefully and i would say in the next couple weeks we should be making those those lists live again and it will take, I would say, maybe two or three months for us to be able to get back to about where we were before. Um, but it's it will be nice because once we're done with that, um, A, there won't be any questions and we'll make sure that the composers are really uh, comfortable with the project, as well as conductors and educators and performers and everybody else uh, for whom the project was originally created.
0: yeah, it's great to know that um, it's a constantly evolving project, and I think it's nice to have some faith in um, some a website that's really making sure uh, it's evolving with people's thoughts and opinions. Um, speaking of evolving, a lot of people have been changing how they're teaching and performing. Uh, and a lot of people are probably thinking about what am I going to play with my groups, what pieces, uh, am I going to be able to play online or with some weird unbalanced groups I have now because of hybrid learning We were wondering if on the composer end you have any tips for teachers of how to deal with that
1: oh my goodness well the first thing uh, and and I can send you a, a link for this uh, there was a group that got started in the early part of the late late spring early summer uh, that that was put together by, I want to say eight to 10 composers around the country, uh, that, that looked at the needs of educators and music educators across the country, especially with bands, uh, and, and looked at the idea of a flex band approach, uh, to, to, uh, um, basically ask composers, not even necessarily to write new works, but to write works. Or, or to go back to works that they had uh, in their own uh, catalogs and see if they could reconfigure them so that they would be available for ensembles of any number, any size, right? So in, instead of having specifically a flute one part and a flute two part and an oboe part and a clarinet one part, uh, you might only have I don't know, four or five work, four or five uh, parts for the entire thing. So it's a little bit more like the way that uh, the Renaissance composers used to used to write. So it would be kind of like a consort where you'd have soprano, soprano one, soprano two, alto, tenor, bass. And that could be played by, or it could be sung by singers if there was lyrics uh, or, or text, I suppose uh but it could also be played by string instruments or recorders or brass instruments Uh, it was a very flexible ensemble concept several hundred years ago back in the renaissance and that's kind of what this is as well something that we've seen i think uh, in the very um the, the lower levels of of say beginner band works where you might have you know one part that can be played by flutes oboes and clarinets all at the same, you know, in the same uh, uh, range and all and transposed for the different instruments. But now these are not just beginner pieces, but these are actually, you know, sizable, you know, mature works that these composers have gone back and reconfigured in order to be able to allow for ensembles that that may only be meeting in, in small groups in small chamber ensembles and yet still be able to play the works. So that would be one thing to, to definitely check out. What other ideas are, are, are you thinking?
0: Um, we're also thinking uh, a lot of people try to introduce composition or um, improv uh, to their students when they're in a classroom. Um, people might be having more difficulty with that online. And we're wondering if you had tips for that as well.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's right. I also teach composition. Sometimes I forget with all of the other stuff that I'm, that I'm doing these days um yes, definitely there are there are a number of different things that they can do um, there are a number of different books out there and resources uh, that you can find and I can I can probably send you a, a link to to be able to let folks know about it. Uh, a couple of the, the things that I do with folks that it, that's pretty pretty straightforward and, and not too, not too difficult to do uh, is the first thing is just to try your hand uh, now this is going either from the standpoint of uh, the teacher themselves doing the project or the teacher actually having their students doing the project. Uh, and either one can can work uh, where, sorry, I have a friend here flying around in my face. Uh, <laughs> um, The first thing I would suggest is to think about arranging a pre-existing tune. And that doesn't necessarily have to be something that's uh, super contemporary, uh, but actually like older Christmas carols or folk songs or uh, you know simple melodies that can be varied fairly easily uh, and set for any number of different instruments, whether or not it's solo or or a a smaller chamber ensemble, or even a large ensemble um, to explore what that how that could do it. So, you know, oftentimes, uh, educators, they have a fear of being wrong, when, um, when, when they've been asked to compose, they're, they're really scared, because, you know, they, they don't want to be compared to all of the main you know famous composers that people have seen you know for centuries and oh I couldn't possibly write anything as good as this person or that person. Well, obviously that's not why you're doing it. You know, you're you're not there to to write something that's going to try and win a Pulitzer prize. Uh you're there to compose in the same way that um if we ask students or even college students or, or, uh, uh, music educators out in the field to write a poem or two, they wouldn't have any problem with it. They'd be like, oh, I, I know this, you know, I know words. I can make poetry, whether or not it's supposed to rhyme or not. I can figure that out. It has structure. I can, I can, I can play with that. You know, uh, tell them to write a haiku. They'll do it in about 10 minutes. But when you ask them to compose, then it gets really dicey, even if they have taken music theory classes and and done all the things, just because they don't want to sound bad. They don't want to make mistakes. And uh, composers, those of us who have been doing it for a while, we kind of know going in that we're, yeah, we probably are going to make mistakes. And sometimes uh, it may, it may sound goofy in some form or fashion, uh, but at the same time, that's how you learn and that's how you get better. So what's nice about starting with arranging is that you're not looking at a blank slate. You don't have this you know, uh, blank page staring at you and you have no idea what, what to start with. So the first thing is to find a melody and come up with what that melody means to you. You know is it suggesting a certain instrumentation is it suggesting a certain mood is it suggesting a certain um you know emotion that then you could turn into well if it's happy does that mean it's a slow tempo or medium tempo or fast tempo um is it is it a dance uh or is it uh, more of a ballad or something like that and then you can start to play around with what that suggests for harmonies and uh, maybe a structure. How many times are you going to repeat the the song? Does it have a bridge? All of those things. So arranging is the first part and that you can get as simple or as complex as you want. Um, The second technique that I would I would suggest folks play around with is similar but different. Uh, we, we just passed Halloween several weeks ago, and, and one technique that I, I actually just uh, introduced to our one of our education classes here at, at uh, uh, Fredonia School of Music was the idea of um, rhythmic skeletons, which sounds much more... Um, Scary or, or grotesque than it really is. Basically, all it is is that you take a pre existing melody like you were arranging, but this time you actually take the notes away. You just have the rhythms, you take the pitches away, and then you just have the rhythms. And that this can be a two bar melody or a four bar melody or a 16 bar melody. And then you can start playing around with creating melodic lines on top, you know, using those rhythms and then you can start doing cool things like maybe moving bar lines around if it's in four four well maybe you know um you can take three three bars of four 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 and turn that into four bars of three four and so then it starts to shift the uh the emphasis in the melody and it doesn't take long you know you change the pitches you change maybe the metric structure or the tempo if the song was originally a slow tempo maybe Know, get faster or vice versa. Um and then maybe if the melody was originally in minor, make your melody major or vice versa. And then you can basically get it to it doesn't take very long to be able to have something that sounds quite different than the original to the point where most folks might not even realize that you were quoting, but you're not even really quoting because the melody is different. But but that there is isn't any relationship to that original melody, so it's it's kind of a a, a bit of a, a nice foot in the door for folks who uh, who haven't composed before, and it's a great uh, it's a great exercise to be able to uh, for both the students and the teachers, and, and this is one thing that I, I always suggest is for teachers. To maybe uh, compose along with their students, and to show the students that uh, they're it maybe you know they can they can say I haven't composed much. Why don't you guys compose along with me? And then to be able to show them that they can explore it together. That's not really something that you get a chance to do very often uh, in most other aspects of music education, where the teacher is expected to be the expert. And the students are learning from them here. It's kind of like, it's more of you get to learn together, um, and discover things like, oh, wait a minute, if we do this with this scale or add, you know, switch it to a different scale, um, that changes the mood entirely. We didn't know that that was going to happen. So, uh, those are a couple suggestions, uh, for, for educators and, and education, music education students that might be interested in this stuff.
0: Yeah, thank you. That was some great advice. I really especially like the idea of um, teachers learning along with their students. I think that can be super helpful, like you were saying. Uh, We'll go ahead and if anyone has any questions they'd like to ask, feel free to either put them in the chat or just uh, go ahead and say them. Um, I have some questions too if other people don't have more to add. So have you ever had any, like, any schools commission works? And if so, um, can you give advice? Like what are any pet peeves about that? And like, what's the proper way to do it?
1: That's a great question. Uh, and and this, is, this is something that I think a lot of uh, educators tend to forget. Uh, that if they can't find music for a particular, you know, level group or a particular instrumentation, uh, or if they're just like, you know, let's do something new, that, that, uh, commissioning is, uh, a, a good option to deal with. First thing I would suggest when you're thinking about commissioning is to figure out how much money you're going to be able to put together. Now, some schools are lucky and they may have um, you know, a fair amount of resources, maybe they have a really strong booster club or they basically just are in a very um, well-to-do uh, community that might allow for them to be able to put some funds together on a yearly or a bi-yearly basis to be able to, to commission works uh that's awesome if you can do that oftentimes educators are not in that position but that doesn't mean that you can't do it it just means that um you get a chance to put together a consortium and more and more you're finding consortiums being put together and the great part about it is is that it doesn't necessarily have to have 10 or 20 different schools it could just be five of your friends you know, who, who are out there teaching and, you know, let's say you've, you've talked to a composer, uh, and, and they're like, you know, I'd love to commission you to, to write a work. Uh, let's say it's five minutes long. And most professional composers these days, I don't want to, I don't want to say how much everybody gets, but on average, It's about a thousand dollars a minute for a large ensemble work, which sounds like a lot until you, you know, you imagine that these composers, that's their livelihood. That's what that's their, their full-time job. Uh, so if you, if you took a typical teacher's salary and chopped it up into say $5,000 chunks, you can imagine how many works that teacher would have to, or that composer would have to write in order to be able to make the same amount as, as that. So um, oftentimes what will happen, let's say if you have uh, uh, you know, someone who you want to commission $5,000 for, for a five minute band work, uh, some composers might be a little less, some composers a little bit more, but that's probably a good you know, ballpark to at least think about um, like I said, if you have, uh, the resources to put together $5,000 every year, or maybe 2,500 in one year and 2,500 another year, boom, now you've got $5,000, or you could ask four of your friends and then put together $5,000 with a thousand dollars each. And then each school, something like that especially for college students, that still sounds like a lot because you can only imagine how many, how many uh, dinners and lunches you could buy with a thousand dollars. But, but really it's it when it comes to budgets, it's sizable, but it's not out of out of uh, the realm of reality for a lot of school districts. So, so that helps and and to come to a composer um, right off the bat and say, this is about how much we can afford this is what we're looking for these are the limitations we want it to be about x minutes long uh this is about the amount of money that we have available is this something that you'd be interested in and then you get to play around with okay well what is the piece about and that uh it depends on the commission sometimes commissions do have a theme uh i've i've been commissioned uh, for works because it was, uh, in, uh, in honor of a teacher's retirement. And so they wanted the piece that it was actually that particular piece. It was with both a concert band and a, and a choir that they had put together. Uh, and so, so they actually, I f- had to find a text that, that would resonate with that teacher and, and the idea that this teacher was, was retiring, uh, and yeah it can the, the, that kind of limitation can can work pretty well. Um, also it's, it really works well for um, conductors and, and educators to let the composer know what the strengths and weaknesses of their ensemble is right If you have nine percussionists, uh, it's good to let the composer know ahead of time that you probably really need to, write a piece that can use most of those percussionists and not write something with only timpani because then you've got eight percussion students in the back, you know, causing trouble, and not doing anything. Um, I have run into that where folks didn't didn't tell me ahead of time how many percussionists they had. And then, you know, you write the piece and they're like, we still have four more percussionists that we don't have anything going on. Can you add something here and there? And then you had to kind of go back and reconfigure it. Uh, so that that will also help other than that really it's it is kind of uh, the best thing that i would say is to um keep your expectations open in terms of the piece you should already know the type of music that the composer has done and that's sh- i should also mention let's say if you're you're commissioning someone to write something for concert band or for choir or for orchestra that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to commission someone who has written a lot of works for that. So there are a lot of really good composers who have never written for band, uh, and might really appreciate the chance to be able to do that. And when I'm saying composers, I don't necessarily mean that you have to go all the way to the top of the list of the, the composers that everybody knows. This could even be composers who you've gone to school with, or that, that you know are in your area that you you've heard their music you really like to to commission uh this particular composer to do something and they've never written for choir even though you've heard their orchestra pieces and you know they really know what they're doing and they've written for voice and they know what they're doing they just haven't got a chance to write for high school choir or high school band so other than that to to uh to kind of just leave things a little loose in terms of not expecting anything specific because you never know and even the composer never really knows what they're going to write for you until they write it so i hope that helps
2: yes that was very helpful thank you
0: i guess another question i kind of had relating to Um, your diversity database, I was wondering if that's kind of been a more active conversation for your um, whole career with composers, or is that more of a a recent thing um, in the past couple of years? I was just wondering what it looks like on the composer side of things.
1: Yeah, Um, let's see, What's the best way to put that. For a long time, I've been interested in living composers specifically. Um, I, to give you a little bit of a background, I actually did my undergrad in music ed. I didn't even think I was going to be a composer. This was, this was a bit of a surprise. Uh, I, I had been self-taught in terms of, of arranging. I did a lot of big band writing when I was in high school and then in college. Discovered that composing was something that I might be able to do, and actually went down the path of uh, studying film scoring. Before I went back and did my masters and then doctorate in composition. All through that, I never really thought as because as your student, you're just you're pretty much just trying to get yourself through school, and you're not necessarily worried about what what's happening with everybody else out in the world, right? Um, and advocacy for others just for a long time had never really been a big thing, at least in music. I think it has become that maybe in the last 10, 12 years, but, uh, for a long time, uh, the idea of, of advocating for this group of composers or that group of composers wasn't really, uh a big thing in many musical circles. Uh, when I finished my doctorate in 2005 and maybe fast forward another year or so, I, I was, I'd was i been teaching in Oklahoma and I had the opportunity to put together a radio show, uh, which is something that I'd always wanted to do. And it focused on living composers across the country. So. Over the next few years, that was something that I was always very interested in, in making sure that people knew who composers were writ large out in the world. And then, I don't remember when it was, maybe 2013 or 14, I started recognizing that as hard as it was for living composers to be known out in the world, uh, it was much harder for women composers and composers of color. And this was, it had never really been on my radar, but until about 2016, when initially I was just looking at women composers. And then when I started to doing the research and finding out that, you know, the average programming percentage of works by women composers or by composers of color, either one was about 2%. I just kept coming, I kept finding that number whether or not it was professional orchestras or you'd look at uh state lists or you'd even look at um oh uh you know you're gonna have to have fun editing this together um uh what is it uh distribu uh distributors like jw pepper or uh or stanton's you look through their uh You, you look through their, their catalogs and again, it's somewhere between one and 3%. Uh, and, and after a while, when I started seeing those numbers on a consistent basis year after year after year, I'm kind of like, okay, this is an issue, this is something. And while there had been people who had been pushing for it, it really wasn't like something that people were like putting out there as, Hey, you need to do this now. There had been, you, you saw people complaining about it, but nothing was really getting done. And so, and oftentimes it was, you'd hear things from conductors or educators. Oh, I'd love to be able to perform more works by composers from these groups. I just don't know who they are and I don't know where to find them. And so that kind of you know, got me started. And that's uh, pretty much been my thing ever since. Mine and a whole bunch of other folks who, who have, who have uh, taken up the charge and, and I'm glad they have.
0: Very cool to hear the journey of that from beginning to current day. Anyone else has any questions? Feel free to ask.
2: It was an excellent wait time, Laura. i very. Nice.
0: <laughs> I and I didn't even say that it was wait time.
2: I know. I always ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do have one. I don't want to take any students' time and questions, but uh, Dr. Demar, I was wondering if, if you might speak about strategies for putting a face and a story and some some uh, context to the work of underrepresented composers because it it's it's important to just play the work but our students may uh, benefit from knowing about the composers that they're playing as well do you have any strategies for how we put a face to a name and and bring the composer to life um, in, in our classrooms
1: absolutely and it's it's a great point because i think that is something as these conversations have been happening more and more over the last few years folks are realizing that it's important to perform works by composers from underrepresented groups but it's also important to make sure that you're not just playing them because they are by composers from underrepresented groups right no one wants to be thought of as just a woman composer, or a black composer, or a composer from an LGBTQ group, it's, it's, uh, you know, they want to be seen as a person. And so I think a couple of things to be able to think about is first contacting them if they're living uh, and finding out a little bit about them. You know, A, the composer really know, you know, is, is happy to know that you're performing their work. Uh, but also just to get a sense in terms of who that composer is, how they got into composing, uh, and find out a little bit maybe beyond the program note of uh, of what the piece means to that composer. I think that's really really important. Um, you know, for instance, if uh, if you if you are performing a work by a black composer and you happen to have a fair number of students who are black in your ensemble, I think it's really important to bring up the fact a, that this composer is black and then maybe talk a little bit about their history and what their music, what they, how they see their music in terms of what are they bringing to the table artistically? What are they trying to say? Why did this particular piece come about? Um and so so folks that 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 uh, that does a couple of things. First, the composer isn't seen as a black composer. The composer is just seen as a person, right? who happens to be a composer, happens to be black and happens to like writing works on whatever they happen to be writing works about. That does a couple of things. First, it helps the students, who are in your ensemble, who are from that particular demographic to see, hey, there's someone like me doing this. That could be something that I could do. Uh, At the same time, it also helps to normalize it for everybody else as well. So it's not seen as as something that is super unique. Uh, Obviously it should be celebrated, but not in a way that, uh, others, that person that kind of sets them apart from the general population. It's just this, these are all artists, creative people, uh, who are making their living, uh, writing music. And hopefully over time, one of the points of this entire endeavor is to encourage those students in at the k-12 level and even at the college level um who are from these underrepresented groups that composing is something that they could do like i mentioned before it's it's hard enough to just to get any anybody to to think about composing uh but it's even harder when all the music that they hear and play is all from dead white guys or dead and living white guys, right? It's, it's very, very difficult for folks who aren't from that particular group to imagine themselves doing the same thing. And I think we have definitely made strides. We, the collective we across the, the, the country and I think the world, um, it's gotten better, but it there's still a lot more to do. One other thing that I might also mention um, to Matt's question is it's also good to to keep in mind that putting together an entire concert that focuses on just one group may seem like it's a positive because you're, you're putting a spotlight on that particular group. However, It can actually be the opposite. It can actually be inverted where, where by putting the spotlight on that one particular group and not performing works from composers, from that group at any other time in the year, it can actually isolate them as opposed to just make them part of the repertoire. Uh, you see this sometimes, um, let's say in choral repertoire, uh, because you know, how many times have you seen a choral concert where all the composers are white, except the last piece in the concert, which is a gospel or a spiritual work. And then it's kind of like, well, we're diverse because we have, and you're like, no, no, because you're, you're kind of, again, you're kind of isolating them and you're saying that, the only works by black composers in this particular case, uh, have to be from that particular style. Uh, and there's, there's a number of, uh, folks out there. Um, Marcus, uh, Garrett is someone who you should know who's specifically, you know, done a lot of work on non idiomatic works by black composers. Um, that that kind of make sure that folks know that there are works outside of the styles that we normally associate from this group or that group so it's it's uh, it's fine if you want to do um, a concert that um, centers on a particular group but also just to make sure that that's not the only time you perform them and that it's sustainable and you're not just doing it once and then you don't do that again for the next four years or something like that.
2: I do have to add uh, before we wrap up and go, we've had, uh, we, we have a podcast for our junior instrumental majors in wind instrument pedagogy. And we've had a number of guests on and, um, all of them or many of them have all said, oh, be sure to check out the Composer Diversity Database just as a means of what to look for in programming. So Beth Peterson, Emily Trinan, Linda Thornton, they've all independently said, Oh, you need to check out the composer diversity database. So it's such a treat to have the creator of the composer diversity database now on this podcast. So thank you. Thank you for joining us.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. And, and hopefully one of these days I can actually make it out there. I mean, Fredonia and Ithaca, were only about three hours apart. So it feels kind of silly that it, it that it's that difficult to, to get from here to there, but, uh. Uh, one of these days. I hope to see y'all in person again.
2: That would be great.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for um, being a guest on our podcast and having this um, live Q&A with us. We really appreciate it, and we'd love to have you another year, probably, too.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much.